do your due diligence actually to understand the appetite and track record of that organization around flexible working because then you're going into the conversation with an informed view. Secondly, have that discussion on your side with your family around practically what is mission critical for you in terms of flexibility so that you understand what your ask is. A warm welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I'm the CEO and founder of Leaders Plus, an award-winning social enterprise dedicated to supporting leaders with babies and young children. I passionately believe that it is just not okay that in the UK today, if you have a child and want to care for it, it significantly can impact on your chances of getting to the most senior jobs. With this podcast and also our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship Program, I want to change this. I want to give you inspiration and practical support to continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children. So my guest today is Tanya Stevens, who is a friend and I would say a like-minded spirit in terms of supporting leaders with babies. She's a headhunter. She's a principal at Society, which is a global executive search firm, and she leads there at the non-profit practice. So Tanya, very warm welcome to the podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hello. Well, thank you for that nice introduction, Verena. I have been working with Society for six years now, and our focus as a business is on finding talent for socially anchored organizations. So our hope is that by finding great people for really mission-driven organizations, we can change the world for the better. And I've also been really fortunate as a working parent to have an arrangement that's flexible for me here and it's allowed me to combine a really great interesting job with motherhood mm. it's quite interesting because it's probably one maybe I've got the wrong picture in my head but I'm imagining that it's a very very fast-paced environment I still remember talking to a recruitment firm and you end up you know usually when you contact a recruitment firm you want someone in the next hour or tomorrow it's a very fast-paced environment it is fast-paced i think the nature the client facing nature of the work as is the case in many professional services is the challenge when you're working flexibly because your clients need to be answered quickly efficiently you don't want to have gaps and there can be that concern are we going to be giving the best service here so i you know I'm really passionate about giving the best service to my clients. But I think that if you work hard and you put the right structures and support in place around you and you build some great colleagues around you, you can absolutely do that. So what's your work pattern then? So my work pattern is to work Monday to Thursday each week and I don't officially work on a Friday. Mm -hmm. And what happens then? What's the concrete arrangement if a client needs you on a Friday? As we've built the practice, this has evolved a little bit. I think that now I try to be a bit stricter with protecting that time on a Friday for me. Obviously, I have wider childcare concerns that I would have to address if I do work on a Friday. Saying that, I'm really driven to have us deliver great work. And there have been occasions where we've been invited in to do a client pitch on a Friday. And I'll make exceptions to that. I think that it's a give and take situation, flexible working. And if you're committed to your job, sometimes you need to make certain allowances. But it's so important to have boundaries too, i.e. my MD does not expect me to be at the desk working all day Friday while I'm at home. 
he knows that I'll look after my clients and I'll make sure the right support's in place for them, whether that's from me or from another member of the team. So do you have a system in place where you tell the clients where, and where you have another member of staff looking after them on Friday if they need something or how does it work? I'm being probably more open about this now than sometimes I am. But if anything, I'm feeling it's important for me to have that truth out in the open. Truthfully, no, I haven't, especially as we've been a younger practice and we've been building up. I haven't explicitly told clients I'm not in on a Friday. I don't have an out of office on on a Friday. I could do, but I haven't. I always keep an eye on things and keep it ticking over. And I think, honestly, there was a worry for me that if I said that, perhaps there could be concern from people. If we work with this partner, they may not be there full time for us. And we are building a name for ourselves in the nonprofit space. I've been working this way ever since I started at Society and we're going from strength to strength. So I think we have proof now that that's working. Mm. And I'm not necessarily advocating that people aren't explicit about when they work. In realistic terms, I think sometimes it can be tricky and you just need to navigate what mm. feels right for you. Yeah. Yeah, and especially when you work with organizations that perhaps aren't as forward-thinking as you are, and I'm sure many of your clients are forward-thinking, but I'm sure there are also a few that might not be. So you manage that in a way that works for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's been really key for me is making sure as our business is growing, that we're really nurturing talent from within and investing in our team and having a good retention rate. My team has a really good retention rate. And that means that there's experience there that can really support and lead on things. And that's important because no one can do anything themselves. And I think we're at a juncture now where I'm starting to be more overt about, you know, the fact that I'm not here every Friday. Hmm. Well, it's a journey, as they say, isn't it it? Is. in a very cheesy way. But you're chipping away at it in one step after another in an industry that isn't groundbreaking yet in terms of flexible working, but obviously you're leading there. Yeah, I think that it's important to celebrate examples where it's working well and hopefully that helps shift the dial a little bit. Beyond my own personal situation, we're recruiting a lot of senior executives at Society. So working at C-suite or chief executive. And these are, you know, organization leadership positions where a lot of times there is concern about appointing people part-time or in job shares or, you know, with different flexible working patterns. And over time, that is starting to shift. But part of what we feel our responsibility is, is to get that conversation on the table, to ask our clients about whether they have an appetite for it, and to try to open their eyes to consider those that may have more of a flexible working ask. Because otherwise, you lose a lot of fantastic talent from the workforce. Mm. What are the common worries your clients have about recruiting someone into a senior role flexibly? I would say it's about making sure a big organizational leadership job is performing as it needs to. Let's say, you know, you're working three days a week or four days a week. Percentage wise, that's 20, 40 percent of your potential working week that clients can fear they would be losing. I think in certain organizations, perhaps that are larger, once we shift flexibilities for one person, there is going to be an avalanche and what's that going to do to our business model? I think there's a lot of fear generally. And, you know, what I would say to that is obviously any organization needs to manage its risk and needs to make sure there's a proper plan in place, particularly around flexible working patterns. However, there's also great opportunities with it too. And I don't think the benefits are often spoken about enough. You retain fantastic people in 
the workforce who are hoping to, you know, combine their personal lives in a more achievable way with their professional commitments, their personal commitments, rather. You also make sure that you have people very, very committed to doing their job efficiently. You know, I think a lot of people who work flexibly are super efficient when they're at work and they make sure that, you know, they'll do more in less time. Mm. So let's say you have a candidate who is amazing for that role, but he or she wants to work flexibly. Have you got any examples, obviously not naming names, of when you were able to convince a client to go down the flexible route? Yeah, I do. So we worked with a client and they were recruiting a senior business development role for their business. So it was an ambitious organization that was in a growth phase, making its name in the market. And this was a pretty essential position to making sure that they could recognize their growth ambitions. We had a candidate who was really fantastic. They had the right kind of business development, but with a social angle background. So they were able to sort of, I guess, sell social mission, but they also were a new mom. They had twins and they were, you know, at this really important life-changing juncture, wanting to keep an exciting, stimulating and challenging career on the table, but also appreciating that they had two young babies to look after. So I think what we had there was just an open discussion with the client about this candidate's circumstances. And our client was very clear that they had certain requirements of this job. They couldn't make those requirements pro rata. However, if this candidate felt that they could take on those requirements and could build in place the right support, you know, with their support to be able to work more flexibly, then that was something that they were willing to support. So I think the key thing here was getting that discussion out in the open. And that's where if you're working with a search partner or with an agency, It's important to, you know, to have your truth about whether you need some homeworking, whether your hours need to be flexible, whether you're hoping to work four days a week rather than five. Put that on the table because it's going to come out in the wash down the line if you don't. Mm. On that, what have you learned about broaching the topic of flexible working with employers and what should any leaders with babies or young children listening to this consider when they are applying to a job to a full-time job that they actually would rather do in a flexible role I think the first thing is that these situations are deeply personal so it's really important to have a good think in your own time before you have that conversation you know with your family with your partner about what flexibility you need. Is it that you're looking to not work full time? Is it that you just need some homeworking built into your schedule? Because we keep referring to flexible working, but clearly that means different things. There's a whole myriad of ways that can take shape. I think you need to understand what it is that you're asking for and what fits into your circumstances, logistically, financially, mm. personally. And then it's about making sure you have that conversation. At what stage would you ask? Would you say, write it in a cover letter or when should you bring it up? I would be less inclined to just write it in a cover letter without having a conversation to provide some context. So again, 
it depends on the job that you're applying for. If there is a partner involved or even if an organization is recruiting directly, I always encourage people to call up the search partner, call up the organization and inquire about the opportunity. It's a great way to fact find and understand the things about the role that can't be put in black and white in a job advertisement or a candidate pack. And it's also a great way to make a good impression. So this is also the moment if you've decided that this flexibility is essential for you to make an inquiry about that. Now, again, things are different for everyone. It might be that someone prefers to work a bit at home, but it's not absolutely essential for them. If that's not the case, then perhaps that's something that you don't need to broach at that stage. But I think if we're talking about mission critical flexibility that's going to stop you from accepting a job or not, then it's better to see if there's that appetite for that. Following that, I think that I would be less inclined to address that in a covering letter because you have a very short space of time to talk about your motivation and to also pitch your experience into the context of a role. But I would probably, if I was sending a CV and and covering letter, I would probably have a cover note on there saying, you know, further to my conversation with Mary, I'm really looking forward to working with you and, you know, perhaps broach that flexible working Mm. request there. Sometimes there's application forms involved where you may need to fill it out. But for me, and not everyone feels this way, honesty is generally the best policy. And would you say that's the same in regardless of what sector you play in? You personally work with large national and international nonprofits. Other colleagues at your search firm work with profit sector. What would you say? Yeah, and I think again, you know, I am most of my work is in the nonprofit space. I think that even in the private sector, you can have these conversations. Again, you need to make a judgment call. Often when you're looking at a job, you may have done your due diligence about the organization and you may have a sense about what their appetite or lack of appetite for flexibility is. So I think that lots of people could say you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot by giving a potential employer concerns. You know, it's just like how employers are not allowed legally to ask you, do you have children? Are you planning to have more children? You don't need to go in with a sign placard saying, these are my circumstances. Circumstances. For me personally, if that came up as part of my truth, I would talk about my family because actually I'm combining working in a good you know, job where I have to work hard with also managing my family and my life. And I'm proud of that. Not everyone may wish to speak about that. That's a personal decision. But I guess what I'm saying is that if ultimately there is a difference between you being able to continue on working or not, get it on the table. Mm. If you are willing to go back full time and then hope to have that conversation down the line, then perhaps maybe it would be preferable to do that. Mm. Yeah. I think it's really important, as you say, to think through what your absolute red lines are before you have the conversation. But then also when you have the conversation, lead with how enthusiastic you are about the opportunity, lead how you want to progress and so on, just to reiterate that you are ambitious and you are committed. Because I do think sometimes 
when you raise flexible working, there is a judgment made about the level of commitment, which shouldn't be. So you just need to manage that really proactively and make sure that they perceive you as the most motivated person ever. And that at the same time, you need these and these things in order to be doing well at that job. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where, you know, we can be idealistic about it, but there are real challenges here. I have a friend that works within the business arena in a demanding job in financial services. And I know from conversations we have had that, you know, in that space, if you aren't working kind of full time, you can often be seen as a bit of a second class citizen, even if the word on the street is officially you're not. So I think that and that's not just in financial services, that's anywhere. These things are real and you're right. They do happen. But I think what we need to do is, again, just keep trying to shift the dial on that rather than just focus on all of the risks. The risks may need to be spoken about and managed. Let's talk about the opportunities. As you were saying, let's talk about all the, you know, the passion and the experience and everything you love to pour into this job and how actually, you know, being able to do that while also managing other things going on in your life, a young family you know, that's real motivation to make that work because you want to be juggling, you want to be getting that balance right. So if they allow you that, you're going to do your best to make sure that situation really works out well. Are there any mistakes that you've seen people make in terms of negotiating family-friendly arrangements and how should people avoid those? I think one of the main mistakes that I would see is just not preparing. When you go in to have these conversations, which are going to involve a degree of negotiation to them, you need to be able to make your case. You need to understand what you're asking for. You need to understand how you explain how the sort of outputs that you'll generate are still going to be really excellent. And you're going to have thought through logistically how that may work. I mean, one of the things that I think is changing, and obviously we're in, you know, as the digital world continues to advance, many more businesses have invested in the infrastructure that is needed for people to work flexibly. That at the moment can be a real barrier and challenge to some. So it is very relative depending on the space where you are. But the key thing is think through all of that so that you can go into the conversation in an informed manner. Hmm. To talk about the elephant in the room, if we have a dad who wants to work four days a week applying for a full-time job and it's him against someone without children who wants to work full-time. So given that the person at the other end of the table might take the flexible working already as a negative, how can they sell themselves Mm. even better? I mean, I think that men and women both have to sell themselves sometimes in a similar way in that respect. It's about showing that they're qualified and passionate for the job and that they've really thought through how they are a good fit for it, how they've got the right growth mindset to really help the organization go places and that they you know, that the logistics they've thought through as to how that can work for both them and the organization. And I think that for, you know, still culturally, you know, it's a challenge. You look at parental leave and more men are taking parental leave now, but still compared to women, the uptake is really very low. So it's so important to, again, have more people, have more men, if, you know, 
have more men who are asking those questions and who are making it more standard fair. It's not going to change overnight, but I think that we are in a world now where parents, you know, share the responsibilities at work and at home. And we need to, as you said before, chip away at some of these complete misconceptions, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm interested. Is there anything that you've learned about how companies choose who to go for in that final round? Anything that before you went into the recruitment thing business, you didn't know? Yeah, I think that organizations choose people who feel like they have the right drive for them, who have the right skills to unlock the opportunity that they're recruiting to, and who are going to be a good added blend of perspective in their team. So there's a lot of talk about diversity and inclusion. Something really important to us at Society is running open, inclusive recruitment processes. And this is to get a diversity of perspectives around the table because we're stronger when we have them than when we don't. So I think that's something we're really trying to encourage is people to think about their angle and how that isn't just simply a culture fit, but how that's going to enhance the culture. I think it's also important. I had someone that I've worked with before recently tell me they had been looking for a chief executive role, their first chief executive role. You know, I'd given them some advice saying, you know, at some point it's the chicken before the egg situation. You have conviction in what you bring. And for the right organization, they're not going to want to try it and test a chief executive. They're going to be really interested in the experience and perspective you bring and they're going to see your appetite and they're going to invest in that and she said she really that meant something to her and she took it away with her because you know she realized she had to have that conviction and what she is offering and I think that that is something that is also very important to have conviction about what you bring and stick to that because if you pretend to be something you're not again it's not going to come across as well or as authentic mm. let's talk about chief execs i see a lot of people who come through a specific route so either you know let's say a finance route and become a more and more senior in finance or a business development route or whatever have you learned anything about what helps people to jump from those specific routes into a more generic CEO or let's say COO role? What is needed to jump to the C-suite? I think what's needed to jump to C-suite is firstly showing that you have got perspective on how to run something and how to work well and, and manage people and work collaboratively with any organizational leadership position. You are going to have to help steer with your board and with your senior team the strategy and you're going to need to make sure you have the right human talent around you to unlock whatever it is you're trying to achieve. So I think that beginning to take that on, whether that's through a management position, whether that's perhaps through sitting on a board as a non-executive, I recommend a lot of my candidates and nonprofit pursue a trustee role. There's so many small nonprofits that desperately need skills and perspective. And often people think I may not be needed. My skills might not be what they want. Actually, they need a range of skills. They need a range of backgrounds, perspective. You need to look at organizations that 
you have an interest in your work or it chimes with something in your background or professionally. So I think that's another thing I would encourage people to do to see what it's like around the board table. And I think that it's having that appetite and that vision as well. You asked before about what makes a difference in an interview. Often people will say when asked about where they would take a role, I couldn't possibly make assumptions about that because I don't know the organization intimately yet. I'd need to get in there and see what they're all about. But actually, that often isn't a productive answer. What organizations want to hear is that you can think that you have something about you, that you've begun to throw out some ideas for where you would take things. They want to hear that. So I think that's really important mm. too. Someone told me recently that the more senior you get, the more the money that comes into your bank as a salary is actually not for what you do, but for your thinking. I think that that's really true. But what is important for me, I guess, in search and, you know, let's be honest, recruitment isn't an industry that often has the best reputation. It is around, you know, we need to really support our clients to think as laterally as possible. Obviously, they have a role they need to fill. They need to be realistic about fundamentally who, you know, if there's any core skills that are required to do that. But beyond that, you know, where can they make sure their job descriptions are not discriminatory? How can they talk about their appetite for building channels for more diverse talent to flourish in their organization? You know, they need to be doing that. And how can they get fresh talent into the mix? So an appointment that I'm really proud of recently was appointing Sophie Walker, who was the former leader of the Women's Equality Party to the Young Women's Trust. You know, that was Sophie's first chief executiveship, but she had the right component parts and the right vision that she shared with the board, you know, and they were really excited to now see what she can do with the organization at this juncture. So, you know, that was very exciting and also fantastic for me seeing someone take on their first chief executiveship. That's something that I love to support. Hmm. Fantastic. By the way, there might be lots of people approaching you now after <laughs> you uh, want yeah. to go get into chief executive. No, I'd love to. We yeah. have a great team here, both me and my colleagues too. So when we know there are good people out there who are looking or who need a bit of a sounding board, we're very happy to talk with them so they can drop us a note here at Society. Okay. So actually, I want to talk about money as well, because it does matter. And no one really knows... I don't think, how to negotiate at interview stage. Mm. And we do know the gender pay gap is massive. And also there's evidence that shows that your first salary in an organization, so if you come in, let's say, at a director of fundraising, that salary then really influences how you get paid and further down the lines as you get promoted. So bottom line is it matters how much you get in that first job in an organization. Do you have any advice or have you seen anything work well Hmm. I think that, again, what is difficult about the salary issue is that it varies quite widely by sector. The, the transparency levels, you know, in the public sector, you often have salary bandings, even in nonprofit, often there's an advertised salary range. In the private sector, often that's not necessarily going to be the case. So what I think is quite important is Generally, as you're negotiating on these senior roles, if there's a search partner involved, they are going to ask you what you're earning. So the organization hiring is going to likely know that. 
what I think is important is to have them make the first move, really. So in terms of, you know, sometimes people will be put on the spot and ask, well, what's your expectation for this job? And this is where, for some, there might be a tendency to pitch it a bit lower. It's important to have them make the first move then to do your due diligence, you can always go away and think about it and then to come back. And if you feel that it's not fair to negotiate, if a range has been advertised and even if you're taking a jump up significantly in pay, but they offer you under that range, then that's not right. And they should be called up on that. Mm. It's also a good idea. And you may disagree with me on this, but I do think it's a good idea to withhold your previous salary if your previous salary was low it may not be what the search partner likes however it really will influence what the organization offers and i've seen some research that when that salary from the previous job is withheld there's a lot more equal pay offered to women and people from ethnic minorities yeah see and this is the thing i couldn't try to refute the research and i think it depends on who you're working with here again Each situation is is its own. When people are working with us as a search partner, if there is a jump for them, you know, generally we are asking for people to disclose salaries. And I guess what I can give you an example is if there are 10 strong candidates that we've put forward and everyone's given salary information, but one person, and it also appears that it is a step up for that person, that it can lead a client to start to draw their own conclusions about that anyway. And to also, you know, just be a bit perplexed or suspicious. They might think their pay is lower than it actually is. It just doesn't put it on the table where I guess if you have someone who will work with you and who can manage that expectation, who can talk about the fact, maybe actually you may have earned more in a previous job and you've taken a cut to move into a new area and now you're looking to scale or that you've been in an area where you've taken on increasing responsibility, but because of difficult management, you haven't been given a pay rise and actually you're probably being underpaid, that you have the core credentials that meet the role that you're applying to. I think if you have a good partner working with you, they will make that case and they will have that conversation Mm. with you before you take the time to apply. Mm. They should. Just because of who you are and what you're passionate about, you do work with a lot of new mums and some new dads. Is there anything else that you wish they would know or do or think? I think the biggest thing is it's just creating pathways for people to connect and make this more the norm. It's something that I, in my capacity here at Society, can I talk to lots of people in this space and I can make connections and connect the dots in that sense. But I feel that, you know, organizations like Leaders with Babies is making real waves to have this conversation be in the mainstream because people need to be supporting each other. We need to hear evidence of when it's worked so that, you know, there's a cumulative effect of that. I think sometimes organizations that have been resistant in the past, you know, changes are being made now. And that's a really positive thing. So, uh, you know, so that's something that I would encourage people to do is talk about that, get involved. If there's some way that you can make some waves, whether that's within your organization or outside of it, If we're complacent and we don't talk about it, it's not going to change. Mm, Definitely. And on that note, I can really recommend to any listeners to sign up to the Leaders Plus newsletters, which is on our website, because you'll get invitations to all sorts of events and conversations, which is exactly about what you've just said there, Tanya. And is there anything that people should know about what 
employers think about when a new mom or new dad approaches them for a job? I think employers want to make sure that the role they're recruiting to is going to be fulfilled successfully. So, you know, I think that that tends to be the core concern actually is what needs to get done, going to get done. And then sometimes is there going to be a knock-on effect across the organization if it's an organization that traditionally hasn't had, you know, particularly flexible working practices. And this is why I think, you know, you need to take a view about if you need to be overt about that, you know, if that flexibility really is essential to you, or, you know, if you want to be a bit of a pioneer warrior for it once you get your foot in the door. Mm. Okay, so let's finish with two to three really practical tips that someone who has a young baby or toddler in tow and wants to apply for a senior leadership role in tow can implement today. Firstly, research. Make sure that you know the working practices of the organization that you're applying to. These are some things you might be able to source online through their website, through other bits of social media, do your due diligence actually to understand the appetite and track record of that organization around flexible working, because then you're going into the conversation with an informed view. Secondly, have that discussion on your side with your family around practically what is mission critical for you in terms of flexibility so that you understand what your ask is. That's really important. And thirdly, I would say, go for it. You need to not let perceptions of the difficulty of finding flexible working hold you back. Are there challenges? There are definite challenges. We see them all over the press. We see them, you know, with our friends and family. They're real. But the landscape is slowly starting to shift. And I'd say that if you think through your personal circumstances and the logistics of that, and you also do your preparation as you always would when going into a job interview, then you put yourself in a great position to show that you're an excellent fit for the job and that you've really thought through how you can make it work in terms that allow you to have the balance you need in your life. Fantastic, Tanya. Thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a lot. It was a pleasure to have a chat with you. Thank you, Verena. It was really nice. Thank you for listening today. If you are on maternity or shared parental leave or adoption leave for that matter, if you have a young child under three and if you don't want to choose between your career ambition and enjoying your young family, then I warmly invite you to apply to the award-winning 2020 Leaders Plus Fellowship. Applications are open now and there are some hardship fund spaces available if that should apply to you. You'll get access to senior leader role models, develop a peer support network across sectors, and you get evidence-informed support to progress your career and overcome barriers to juggling family and career. Obviously, if you have a baby, you're very welcome to bring them along to our events and sessions. If you want to find out more, go now to www.leadersplus.org.uk and download the application pack. I've been extremely pleased with the response to this podcast. Thank you everyone so much who has been contributing to the conversation, who has suggested great people for me to interview and also who has helped and supported me in this new endeavor by subscribing and reviewing the podcast. So if you haven't done so yet, it would be amazing if you can tell your friends about it and 
if you give us a review. Obviously, five-star reviews are super helpful to reach more people who can benefit from this. Thank you again. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can do so at verena, V-E-R-E-N-A, at leadersplus.org.uk. You can also get in touch via Twitter or Instagram at leaders underscore plus. I hope to hear from you soon.